Gabby brought to you by free mental health and wellness app my possible self in partnership with the Priory Healthcare welcome to today's episode of the happier life project which is focusing on demystifying women's reproductive health now when I say a female's reproductive system flagging from the get-go this doesn't mean that we're doing a conversation around conceiving pregnancy and childbirth today Reproductive health is the health of an individual's reproductive system during all stages of their life. And when it comes to a female's, there are so many mixed messages and conflicting opinions out there. I really wanted to get to the truth and facts on the areas that women can really struggle with, with a guest who has made it her life's purpose to smash the taboos and encourage open, frank communication and conversation. Dr. Brooke Vandermolen, aka Online, the OBGYN mum, is a practicing NHS obstetrics and gynaecology doctor, as well as a mother to two babies. After having difficulty finding accurate, evidence-based information to trust to guide her through her own first-time pregnancy and parenthood, Brooke began sharing insights and tips around pregnancy, birth, fertility, menopause, and more through blog posts and social media. Her evidence-based information has taken the internet by storm smashing down taboos and we're going to cover many of the myths and misconceptions today in this conversation. Should we be using feminine hygiene products? What is a normal menstrual cycle? Can diet really affect fertility? What if I don't have a symmetrical looking vulva? Is it okay to have a bit of discharge every day? And why are our emotions so influenced by our reproductive organs? I'm really going there today on the podcast and I'm taking you with me. So, ready to find a healthier, happier you? Let's get started. Welcome, Dr. Brooke, to the Happier Life Project. I've decided to call this episode Demystifying Women's Reproductive Health because you know more than most, there's a lot of myths and confusion and taboo around the subject of women's reproductive health. The root of this confusion and the the taboo and whatnot, is it because there's been a lot of like, um, we shouldn't be talking about it in public until maybe recent years? Do you think that's why people are so confused? Yeah, I mean, there is definitely a lot of women's health, whether it's for kind of cultural reasons, I'm not sure that has been brushed under the carpet. I think in certain cultures, for example, periods are thought of as dirty, um, that they're just something to kind of to hide away, to cleanse yourself, that you can't be a part of the same parts of society at the times when you're bleeding, for example. So I think there is some cultures where these these things aren't openly discussed Uh, and I think even in western society even in kind of England in general I think there is this kind of idea of you just get on with it in a lot of ways as women we've made a lot of taken a lot of steps forward when it comes to working and equality I mean we've still got a long way to go Mm. but because of that 
some parts of women's health we've kind of just had to suck up and just say well that's fine I'm going to work through the menopause because I've got to show everyone that I can still do it and I can just get on with things in the same way and we haven't been able to discuss and say you know what this is what we are going through and this is what we need to put in place in order for things to be equal so I'm glad that a lot of these conversations are being opened up more mm-hmm. um, and certainly maybe social media has helped us to normalize some of these conversations I think prior to those days we often felt like you said alone and going through things so mm-hmm. yeah we've made a lot of changes in recent years some good some bad um, but I hope that, that the the ability to speak openly about women's health is mm-hmm. something that stays with us. Well, I mean, speaking of social media, you've got kind of two major strings to you, Bo, right? Because you are a working, very busy doctor, but then you also are a medical content creator. So I'm curious what came first, the chicken or the egg? (laughs) Did one influence the other? Oh, I never intended to make content or, or be on social media, actually. So definitely that did not come first. I was working um, as a doctor. I'd chosen Gynae as my kind of preferred specialty and was embarking on that career. Fell pregnant myself for the first time and, and realised that like many things, you know, we, we don't really talk about falling pregnant how to fall pregnant we're not really taught it in school we're talking about how to not fall pregnant we're talking about you know taught about contraception but we aren't really talking about the fact that things may not happen for you immediately the first months you try and you know what what changes you might expect in your body when you do fall pregnant and I had a bit of knowledge because I was a couple of years into a career of obs and gynae but even then there was a lot of things that I didn't really appreciate or or understand because Mm -hmm. I learned about you know, when, when things go wrong and I didn't really know about all the changes that might happen, you know, when, which is just part and parcel of, of mm-hmm. normal um, pregnancy. So it was not the earliest days of Instagram. It had been around for a few years, but there weren't that many people creating content from a medical perspective when I started. There wasn't mm-hmm. a lot of people for me to look to. and see, But I, I knew there were some people using these platforms to share not just fashion tips or food. And I just thought, you know, it would be quite nice to talk about my journey and also my experience and my expertise or my understanding of evidence and try and put that out there for other people who might feel similarly to me. So that's kind of where it came from. Yeah, I think just judging by your, the number of followers you have, there are a lot of ladies in particular that are like, yes, we need help on this. Like, we don't know who to talk to about it. Is it better to say women's reproductive health or say sexual and reproductive health? Because we're not just going to focus solely on conceiving in in the conversation today. I just want to make sure that we're kind of opening it up to talking about periods, talking about embarrassing body bits. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of think my own specialty doesn't have a great name at the moment. <laughs> We've got kind of obstetrics and gynecology. Most people don't know what that means. Yeah. And I don't really like calling it women's health because a lot of our patients don't necessarily identify as women and uh, may not identify as mothers either. And so talking about women's reproductive health may kind of you know a whole, a whole group of people may not feel included by that um mm. so I try to be inclusive but I also recognize that even what we call ourselves is not particularly inclusive oh it's interesting you say that because I struggled as well even coming up with like the episode title because I was like we're calling it women's reproductive health does that make people think we're talking about a very specific thing but then yeah, yeah. calling it women's health seemed a bit too broad and too ambiguous <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, women's health, these are the issues that affect people that identify as women, yeah. uh, people who are born with a uterus, people who have periods. I recognise that not everybody that has periods identifies as a woman, but equally, some of the challenges that we're talking about where, mm-hmm. when it comes to, say, periods in the workplace are more, 
I, I think it's very difficult to be inclusive yeah. for both and also not believe people out. I hope people understand that the effort is made there. Yeah. Um, and I think it's okay to say women's health, but also be talking and using terms like people who have periods. I try to just do both. Mm, interesting. I'm curious, what's the number one gynecological concern that you see patients for? Oh, um, well, I, that very much depends on which clinic I'm in because I see people from across different clinics. And we've got clinics, for example, that are more focused on menstrual health. So I see a lot of uh, teenagers and adolescents at the moment. So we you know, painful or irregular periods. So anything heavy, painful, irregular periods. But also we've got clinics that focus on things like early menopause or fertility issues so a whole host of things so yeah there's not any one thing that i necessarily see patients for because we've got different clinics that specialize in different aspects of gynecology in terms of like when i'm on social media and i'm talking one of the common questions i get asked about are um you know, changes to people's periods through their lifetime. And I think we don't Mm. necessarily appreciate that. But maybe, for example, having irregular or painful periods in adolescence isn't necessarily appreciated that that may improve over time. But also people don't expect that they're going to have maybe heavier periods after they give birth or no periods after after birth. So period changes after pregnancy, for example, is also kind of a common area that I feel that people don't fully understand or appreciate or have a lot of questions about. And then also in later life, in later life, as we head towards the menopause you know we we often experience heavier more painful periods again even in the run-up several years in the run-up to menopause mm. I mean men and men who identify as men they do have it easier don't they on the in terms of the reproductive health like I don't think anybody can particularly argue with that yeah I'm curious to know because I've never really thought about it before Why are a female's reproductive years so influential to our emotions? Yeah, well, when you're in your reproductive years, that means that you're having a kind of a menstrual cycle. That means you're ovulating. That's the whole kind of key. Your reproductive years start when your ovaries turn on and start releasing an egg each month. And your time when you're fertile, your reproductive years are over when you reach the menopause, which means you've run out of eggs, you stop ovulating. And so mm-hmm. the whole point of that menstrual cycle is you've got a cycle of hormonal changes that happen with it. So that happens each month when you ovulate, your body's levels of estrogen and progesterone are changing constantly in a cyclical way. So I would say that's probably why our cycles do have such a significant impact because of the changes in hormones that go along with it. Mm-hmm. But also it's, you know, it it's a time in your life where you are going through a number of those changes during those reproductive years you might be you know trying for a baby fertility might encompass you might think of it as just taking a couple of months but for many people they don't expect to have a five or ten year journey to have a baby just because that there it takes so long to fall pregnant mm. uh, pregnancies as well and how that has a big impact on your both your hormones mm-hmm. and also how you feel in yourself and in your body mm. and in the workplace so yeah I, I think there's a lot of reasons that are reproductive years have a more significant impact than we necessarily expect yeah because I think about the emotions that come to mind when we talk about like PMS or PMT it's the same Mm -hmm. thing right and it's like anger irritability depression like sad feeling sad we don't think about it being particularly joyful you know when we're it's usually when we're about to come on right when we're particularly emotional Yes. So the changes, the PMS changes, the changes that you're describing, like 
kind of mood swings, also fatigue, breast tenderness, uh, all of those kind of um, symptoms are associated with progesterone. So it's that part of the menstrual cycle where you have higher levels of progesterone. So and they give you bloating and all of those other things. So yeah, those changes that, that usually start around a week before your period may begin, uh, definitely bring with them um, a lot of challenges. And we experience it to different degrees. Some people aren't very sensitive to the progesterone and kind of get on fine and never really notice any PMS symptoms. And other people it's mm. debilitating for them it prevents mm. you from being able to do your job it gives you this kind of brain fog inability to concentrate and think straight and those are the people that we sometimes see in the clinic and, and for whom medication can sometimes help yeah just the, going back to the clinic thing i didn't realize that there was different clinics for different aspects of uh, women's reproductive health is that all over the country uh, no, um, I would say that it just depends on where you are. Where I am at the moment is quite a specialist gynecological centre. Mm. Uh, but in general, you know, doctors will, GPs will be able to deal with many of these problems themselves. So they wouldn't necessarily need specific gynecological input. But then if you if you do, if you try certain things your GP prescribes and they're not working, then the next step might be to refer you to a gynecologist. Some gynecologists might just see, uh, you know, all different issues to do with periods in one clinic. Some people have different clinics for different different issues so that would depend on where you are but also yeah what type of hospital you're being referred to Mm, yeah that is really interesting so I just want to come back to periods for a bit longer there's no one size fits all what if we don't have the perfect 28 day cycle for example is it okay if we have the perfect 32 day cycle or is something wrong no, so uh, having a regular cycle is a good sign of health. Some people describe it as kind of like your sixth vital sign. So it's a sign that your body is is kind of in a good balance, in an equilibrium if you have a regular cycle. It doesn't need to be strictly 28 days. Anything from 21 days to about 36 days would be considered completely normal. Even outside of that, if it's regular for you, that would most likely be a sign that you're ovulating because essentially what a regular cycle tells you is that you're ovulating each month Mm. if there is a big shift in the number of days of your cycle so some of them are say 20 days so you get a period every three weeks and another time it takes every 45 or 50 days that is maybe a sign that you're not you're having some cycles where you don't ovulate where you don't release an egg so that's a more irregular cycle and is that when we'd need to to get things looked at Yes, irregular menstrual cycles in and of themselves aren't necessarily an issue. Um, It just depends on how much it impacts you. The main important thing is that you should be having at least four periods a year. If you have less than that, then there's a chance that the lining of your womb could be thickening up. So we like you to have at least four periods a year. If you are having four periods a year, actually, that's probably enough. So it's just about how inconvenient is it for you to not know when your periods are coming. Uh, And the caveat to that is unless you are actually planning to fall pregnant. If you want to fall pregnant, if you're trying for a baby you should be having a regular cycle because that would indicate you're ovulating each month. And if you're not, you may not be ovulating. So your efforts of trying to get pregnant may not be successful unless we help you to ovulate. So if you're trying to get pregnant and you're having very irregular cycles, then I'd see your doctor sooner than later. Well, you see, I'm already learning things because I didn't know that four periods a year is still deemed as okay in in certain cases. I would have thought it Mm. would be 11 or 12. What about like occasionally, like usually we're regular, but then we might come on a bit early or we might come on a bit late. Is that anything to worry about or is that just part of being a lady? <laughs> our menstrual cycle is very sensitive to what's going on in our in our mind and body. Mm. And that's why 
people consider it to be a sign of health because actually little things can send your cycle out of, out of track because it is so sensitive to changes in the hormones that come from the brain so for example stress is a big one mm. and stress you might be aware of or stress you may not even be aware that you're stressed sometimes that can definitely cause your cycle to become unexpectedly irregular also kind of physical stresses on your body so that might be that if you're flying a lot you've got a lot of jet lag or if you're doing a lot excessive amounts of exercise also the kind of stress where your body is physically stressed because of what you're eating so for example if you are very counting your calories very carefully mm. and you lose a lot of weight uh, you're restricting the food that goes into your body that can cause your periods to um, to disappear altogether as you might have heard from like athletes for example where they're eating very very strict amounts of food but also exercising excessively mm. so those types of things can temporarily affect your cycle so if you've got the odd cycle that you where you where you skip a month that's probably okay especially mm -hmm. if you're in tune with yourself and you know why maybe that happened for you also if you get like a vaccination or any other physical stresses like that that can also a lot of people notice it when they had the covid vaccine you might notice that that would cause your cycles to change for a couple of months and settle back again it's just if they don't settle back that's when you might want to think what's going on right so when you're flying it's not the flying itself that um, causes the the period to sometimes be a bit delayed or come on you couldn't come on early as well that's happened to me i've come on on a plane yeah yeah is it the jet lag it's not the actual it being in the sky no I don't, i'm not aware that actually like altitude for example can can actually cause those periods to come on because it, it's more about how your hormones react to maybe getting up very early it's and the stress you know, kind of thing the right? changes yeah the changes in your in time zones and things like that and stress mm, again yeah mm. it's funny how this conversation is happening now i'm freezing my eggs next month so um, I'm going on my own fertility journey at the moment. And mm. I know full well from just, I mean, doing my own research and I've got a loved one that's trying for a while. And I know that stress is like a huge impact of like, if you want to get pregnant, isn't it? And actually, I'd love to know your advice on, because sometimes stress might be out of our control if it's like work stress or yeah. family stress that's not we're not causing the stress so then when you're trying to get pregnant like are there any things that we can do to help with that it's the worst thing to ever say to someone who's tried to get pregnant isn't it yeah. like oh well you know maybe you're just too stressed maybe you should go on holiday and get away yeah. from stress and then you're full pregnant you know you can't you can't belittle what stress does to somebody and also the fact that we it's outside of our control usually that's why it's stressful mm. it's stressful because they're things that we feel that we can't manage ourselves so I don't think it's it, it, I mean it has a significant impact on falling pregnant but equally it's not something you just kind of fix in a click of the fingers yeah. obviously it's about managing the things that you can manage can you manage to get a few extra hours sleep can you manage to fit some exercise or some yoga or something into your schedule you know which bits of it can you offload to somebody else can you get a holiday? Can you get a time away? It doesn't mean to say that you're necessarily full pregnant immediately because you've taken a holiday, but more just stepping outside of that same environment. Mm. Can can you shift those kind of things? And mm. then uh, I also am a big fan of things like mindfulness and considering whether you could fit that in even just a few minutes a day. So there, there are sort of things that you might be able to do, but equally, I wouldn't just put stress down as the only reason that someone can't fall pregnant and so I would encourage them if they've been trying for a while and it's not happening even if they're stressed even if not I would seek help rather than trying to manage it all on your own 
Mm. And sometimes as well, people do seek help and there's no, there's nothing that any doctor can find, right? This has probably mm. happened in with you in terms of people that you've seen where it's like, well, on paper, everything seems fine. It's just sometimes I guess maybe you've just got to be a bit patient. Yes, I think people don't necessarily appreciate the fact that it, it's completely normal for it to take a year to fall pregnant. So even if both of the couple have absolutely no fertility issues underlying, it can just take a year to fall pregnant because your chances of falling pregnant each cycle, I think they're around 20%. Each month, even if you try perfectly, you're having mm. sex on the right days of the month, mm-hmm. it can still take a year, up to a year for you to fall, fall pregnant. And then even then, for about another t- sort of 10% of people who haven't fallen pregnant by a year, another another 10% or so of them will fall pregnant by two years. So you'd say about like 80 to 85% of people will fall pregnant within the first year of trying. And then up to around 90% of them will fall pregnant by the second year. Okay. So it can just be time that can yeah. be enough, but you don't want to dismiss it and you don't want to waste time because also... As we get older, the quality of our eggs decreases, as you know. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we are born with all the eggs we're born with. And then we steadily lose eggs. And our eggs, the eggs we have remaining are of worse quality as we get older. So you wouldn't want to tell someone, oh, go away, you know, just give it another few years. All of which time they're kind of losing the quality of their eggs by continuing to try for a pregnancy, say, for three years. So that's why it is important to seek help after a year. But it doesn't necessarily mean you'll definitely need treatment. Mm. I'd love to touch upon and um, you mentioned it before about like diet and in terms of the impact that has on both our periods and our fertility. You know, if you're underweight and if you're overweight, yeah, neither is good for your reproductive system, right? Exactly as you said. So I'm 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 not a kind of nutritionist or a dietitian. However, the main thing that I I do try to explain to people is that it, it is about having a healthy and balanced diet, putting in this kind of three good sized meals a day, mm-hmm. um, and not eating excessively, and and regular exercise, both of which will really help in terms of fertility. And it is all about having your kind of BMI. It's not it's not a great measure, but but aiming for your BMI to be in a, in a healthy range because being underweight or being overweight will impact on your ability to fall pregnant. It, it's another one that it's easier to say than to actually be able to change it. Uh, and it's not to say that everyone is able to change it, but being aware of the things that can have an impact help us mm-hmm. to kind of, you know, piece it all together when we're thinking about what, what things can we try to improve upon if we're trying to fall pregnant. Mm. And does that help as well with in terms of irregular periods or heavy periods? Would the, it's, is that ever anything to do with diet? Yes, it can be. Uh, so kind of heavy and painful periods. They often also go alongside with anovulatory cycles with the fact that if you're not ovulating regularly, then the next periods you have can be more heavy and more painful than the one before. And we also know that, yeah, having a higher BMI can lead to conditions like PCOS or they kind of go alongside with conditions like PCOS which also make it more difficult to lose weight if you if you're trying to lose weight so often these sorts of things do go hand in hand and what is PCOS for our listeners so yeah PCOS is polycystic ovarian syndrome it's Mm -hmm. where you have excessive number of of follicles on the ovaries um, and they can cause a change in the balance of your hormones people who have PCOS often have got a slightly higher BMI they also uh, suffer with things like acne 
excess of hair growth on their kind of face or their arms. And sometimes they have difficulty controlling their blood sugar as well. And it can go alongside diabetes. Mm. So uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome is an important one to think about. I think a lot of people get given the name of polycystic ovarian syndrome where they may not have necessarily ticked off all of it um, and they don't definitely have it. But it's important to be aware if you've got it, because, again, things like getting your weight into the healthy limit can improve your periods as well as improving your chance of falling pregnant when you when you want to. I mean, even if you don't want to fall pregnant right now, if you do want to have children in the future, it's worth being on top of all this stuff as of now, well, yeah. not don't wait around for it kind of thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, these putting into place these changes can take longer um, and you don't necessarily want to be under stress uh, to do so. So, yeah, I mm. think this is all about maintaining a healthy lifestyle in general. Mm. Can we talk a little bit about body bits? Mm-hmm. And I think the TV show Naked Attraction has actually done a lot. Do you, are you familiar? <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah. I'm, so you smell. I don't love the show. I don't love the show, but more because I just don't enjoy watching it. But yeah, I'm aware of it. I know what you're getting at, but I think in terms of like helping people realize that there isn't just one size fits all. <laughs> literally I think it's done some good things you know because if we talk about and I've actually seen on one of your I think it was a post or maybe a story or something of yours on Instagram the vagina we're talking about the vulva when we're talking about the outside right so we're we're wrong to say our vagina when we're referring to the outside part yeah yeah but even in terms of like the shape and so I think about and I'm just I'm gonna go there for everybody in terms of like you know all girls want the neat vulva, but then they're not often given the neat vulva. And that can cause a lot of, again, going back to mental health and, and emotional health, worry and stress. So what would you say to anybody who might think, well, mine, you know, looks a bit wonky or doesn't look pretty to me? What would you say? Yeah, Well, I would say we get a lot of the stereotypes of what we think a vulva looks like from uh, porn and things like that. So Mm. the images that we uh, and certainly men are exposed to are very different from the reality. And it is not normal for, for example, the labia to be the same size. It is very normal for them to be of differing sizes and have different kind of contours and to not be a smooth, symmetrical shape. That's just not how the vulva is supposed to be. Mm. And it might be that if you see these images of this kind of uh, very tidy symmetrical vulva they're actually they've had some sort of surgery to make it like that i would say it's very helpful to look at there's a website i think called the vulva gallery see lots of different images of what different vulvas look like but but vulvas do come in all shapes sizes colors hair distributions you know mold patterns all of these kind of things it's completely normal and when someone comes to me saying that they're worried about what their, their vulva looks like i try to dig in more into what's made them feel like that where because I don't think we're born with a insecurity about our vulva I think it comes from somewhere whether it comes from something that a partner has said to you before or a conversation that your friends have been having and really trying to understand and unpick where did that insecurity or that worry come from um mm. and, what, and what can we do feeling rather than what can we do to kind of make your vulva fit the kind of normal that you have in your mind mm. Yes or no, most vaginal health products are bogus. We shouldn't clean with anything but water. (laughs) Yes, I would agree that most products targeted at the vagina, uh, kind of especially when it comes to feminine cleansing, 
are probably manufactured by men and they're just a way mm. of kind of furthering this mentality of like vaginas are smelly and dirty and periods are smelly and dirty and you need these products to make you clean and the vagina so we're talking about the internal bits again here now the vagina is self-cleaning we cannot say it enough so that is why you have discharge it is normal for discharge to have a bit of a smell a bit of an odor and that is your body's way of getting rid of uh, the kind of bugs and infections that might live in the vagina so it is healthy to have discharge which is kind of white or colorless and when it comes to wanting to clean or to wash it in the shower, of course, everybody wants to kind of have a wash everywhere, but just make sure you're not using any soap on, on the vulva and specifically never washing internally with any kind of soap or body wash or cleansing washes. Mm -hmm. So you don't need any special product. If you want to buy them, fine, but you don't need any special products that are formulated for the vagina to, to clean that area. Just washing the outside, the kind of hair bearing bits with a bit of soapy water on the outside, never on the inside should be enough. You don't need anything special. So is it normal to have a bit of discharge every day? Absolutely. Yeah, you'll absolutely notice a bit of discharge every day. Sometimes you might notice a bit of variation in the discharge throughout the cycle. When you're coming up to ovulation, the discharge can become a bit more gloopy and kind of sticky and later on in the cycle it might be more tacky in terms of how it feels so there is a change in the discharge throughout the cycle uh, but you it is normal to have some discharge every day and it's normal for a little bit of an odor but not not too yeah. funky that's when maybe you want to get it checked out yeah what we just want to rule out is any kind of infection and so if you it's more about knowing your body and knowing what's normal so having a bit of a kind of smell there is normal but if you notice a change in the smell from how it was before it can indicate an infection mm. Keeping on top of being like tested, you know, going for your like cervical screen tests, I realised that I hadn't had the, what's it called, the STI testing in forever. And I was like, oh my gosh, goodness. And then when I asked, inquired about it, the NHS said, oh no, you order your pack online now for that. So it's like you do that at home. So you still go to see a, a nurse via your GPs for your cervical test, but then anything else, you've got to make sure that you're on top of that yourself now. Yes. Yeah, so I'm not sure if there was ever a really a regular program for sort of screening for STIs everyone in the general population there was one time they were sending it out it's kind of like a, just a big plan to try and test as many people as possible and they were sending it out i can't remember if it was people that were age 18 to 25 that was more uh, of a short-term plan it wasn't an ongoing screening process uh, screening like you say is available it's available and it's free and all you have to do is uh, request it and i recommend getting an sti screen every six months especially if you're if you're changing partners if you've got the same partners then probably at the start of the relationship is, is enough but if you are unsure if, it, if you've both got the same partner the whole time mm. then just getting a regular screening every six months so you can get that via a sexual health clinic via your gp via going online but yeah you won't usually be sent it spontaneously and now when girls, and I actually think it's been rolled out to boys as well, when they're, is it 12 or 13, the HPV vaccine has, has been rolled yeah. out. But for any of us that sort of missed the boat there, and I've heard conflicting stories from two different nurses in terms of being a proactive in getting the HPV vaccine. One nurse told me, yes, you should do it because it'll protect you to prevent you from getting it when you have intercourse in the future. Whereas the other nurse said, no, once you start being sexually active, then it's not really worth doing it anymore. That's why we go for kids that are 12 or 13, because it's before they start having sex. So, yeah, I'm clearing that one up. <laughs> 
Yeah, of course. So the reason we have the HPV vaccine, the reason we worry about HPV at all, is because HPV is a virus. And if you look back at everybody who has cervical cancer, over 97% of people who have cervical cancer have evidence of this virus there. So we know there is association with having this virus and then developing cervical cancer. But it's a very, very, very slow growing cancer. It can take up 10 years to grow. So it's a slow growing cancer and not everyone that has HPV develops cervical cancer. But it's more that we know that if you don't have the HPV, then you've got nearly zero percent chance of getting cervical cancer mm. if you have hpv it doesn't mean you definitely will get it but it means that you'll be kept under closer surveillance than someone who doesn't have hpv there is this vaccine so the idea is to prevent people actually ever getting that hpv virus themselves and as you say the idea of giving it to 12 to 13 year olds is to try and get it because it's a, it's a virus that's sexually transmitted but it's not it's not like an sti that gives you kind of symptoms like chlamydia gonorrhea and it's it's very easily passed between sexual partners who won't be aware that they have it mm. um, so males and females can carry it the idea of getting the vaccine before you become sexually active is it protects you before obviously you encounter the virus for the first time the advice is actually that yeah Although you won't get the same protection if you get the vaccine after you've already become sexually active, it may help. There's, there's I think, over 100 different types of strains of HPV. So potentially, even if you've only encountered a couple of the strains, by having the vaccine, you might protect yourself against other strains that you haven't encountered. But you would have to pay for it privately. So you wouldn't be able to get it on the NHS mm-hmm. um, if you're kind of outside of that age range. But if you wanted to, you could still get it even later on. Mm. It's only females that it's detectable in as well, and it's through having your smear test. Well, it is detectable in males as well, and HPV is also associated with other cancers, like um, anal cancers, for example. Just we, we don't screen for other cancers, or we don't screen for anything in men that would pick up HPV. Right. Um, so it, it can be detected, but they don't get it checked regularly because it doesn't cause as many problems for men as it does uh, for women or people who have a vagina. Ah, okay. And a cervix. Okay. I wanted to talk actually real quick about fertility as we get older. And you've just said yourself, the eggs as we age, the quality reduces. Um, There's a lot of emotional and mental pressure, isn't there, on a female in in our childbearing years. And then sometimes, you know, if somebody's in their 20s or early 30s, which is the ideal time to get pregnant, they might not be financially secure enough to be able to support a kid, or they might be on their own they might not have found a partner and they don't want to do it solo what's your thoughts on a woman's reproductive years and the pressure that is put upon us more than I think we put on ourselves sometimes yeah it's it's really difficult because I probably would would identify that I'd be someone that adds to that pressure because it's something that I think is important that we talk about but anyone who's ever worked in in the kind of fertility area will tell you how you know, it's, it's heartbreaking when you see someone who's, say, 40, 41, trying to get pregnant at that age and, and can't. And even even IVF is not a guarantee of being able to take home a baby, mm-hmm. particularly because when you're over the age of 40, your egg quality reduces so much that the eggs that you are able to to get and stimulate may not be able to be fertilized and, and become a baby. And so it's heartbreaking. And the thing that I just I guess on one hand, I never want anyone to feel pressure or to feel that we are, you know, judging people or saying, you know, why are you leaving it so late? But equally, as good as technology is, there's just there's just no way around it at the moment that our egg quality decreases over time. And so if you if you wait until you're in your 40s, which is 
you know, completely reasonable. Like you say, the cost of living crisis, you know, it's, it's harder for people to get houses. It's harder for women to get promotions, especially after you have children and all of these kind of things that feed into the decision making, which are all real. Mm. But at the same time, we have to talk about that kind of elephant in the room and just say, you know, what you could leave it, but you're leaving it to a lottery, essentially, if you want to wait till later. So we shouldn't be putting pressure. But equally, I think there are options out there if we know that we're going to be leaving it till later on to try and take back some of the control over our fertility because it feels a bit like you know yeah it's 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 in the hands of others mm. but the things that I would say I, I often get asked whether by people say oh should I go and should I get some of those home fertility testing kits you know if I, I I don't recommend any of that I don't think you need to do your test your own fertility at home the one thing that you should be doing if you think that it's going to be a number of years before you're going to get come around to trying to have a baby is freezing your eggs because that's the only way that you could try and it's still not a guarantee mm. because the eggs that are frozen you don't know how good their quality will be and if they will thaw well they'll you know when you take them out of the freezer if they'll still be usable but they'll be better than the quality of eggs you'd have later on in life mm-hmm. so it's an insurance policy but the best insurance policy is trying younger than later on I'd love to be able to say something different and say, because I'm all for, you know, empowering women and, and being able to choose your career and put yourself first and come come to having the family when you're ready. But there's nothing that you can do about the fact that the age is an important factor. Mm. In some countries, they um, will let you freeze your eggs for free now. I wish that would be the case in the UK, but I can't see that happening anytime soon. I, I, <laughs> Maybe. I do and I don't. I guess I, I think I wouldn't want everyone to think exactly as I just said that it would guarantee then that you can leave it till later. Mm. Now I know most people wouldn't choose to, to you know, it, it's it's not like they would be choosing to wait unless they that was what was necessary for them at the time. But equally, if you make that the default and it's free then everyone would freeze their eggs and maybe wait till they're kind of in their late 30s to have a baby because they've they've managed to kind of tick off some of those other things on the list before getting around to having a family but it's not a guarantee and so it's a very expensive process that doesn't necessarily guarantee that you can for certain have eggs you know some people go through egg collection for freezing and don't even manage to get any eggs at that mm, time yeah so it can be an ex- it's an expensive process to go through it's an expensive process to store it's great to have it as an option it's a privilege because not everybody is obviously able to kind of go ahead with that choice mm. um because you do need to have in this country at least the financial kind of stability to be able to invest that in yourself and in your future facility but if you are choosing career and finances over over the family at the moment then it is a a useful way of kind of putting some of those resources aside for the future what do you think of the term geriatric mother because i know that there's some petitions going on to try and get that that word geriatric removed advanced maternal age i think is maybe a little bit softer I mean, yeah, that, that word should never be used. I, I actually haven't heard it in the hospitals in a long time. I don't, I don't ever hear anyone using the phrase geriatric mother. Certainly, yeah, I think usually men. It's usually males. Yeah, maybe <laughs> you shouldn't even be able to be using geriatric in describing someone who's eighty years old because it's just, it's just not a very nice word. Yeah, so but... geriatric medicine has been is now turned care of the older person. Mm. So we shouldn't be using that certainly to describe someone who's in their kind of late thirties, early forties. So no, I. I I don't think that that word should ever be used. We are kind of conditioned to fear aging, and I think to fear the menopause. 
part of the fear is what you know the hot flushes and the thing the way your body changes as well as you get older and um what do you say to patients to ease some of those concerns and worries i think we've made significant steps forward in recent years i think there's been a quite a spotlight on menopause which is great because it was definitely brushed under the carpet for too long and I would encourage people to have a chat with their own mums if they've got a mother around to understand their how how their experience was with their menopause because how your kind of your mum experience in menopause is, is likely to indicate how you might go through it so if your mum had a very easy menopause you may have similar if your mum suffered terribly with you know hot sweats and uh, things like that then you might have similar mm. Yeah, I think for a long time it, it was something that you went through um, behind closed doors and caused a great deal of suffering. And I'm glad that now, I mean, the, the medications that are there have been around for a long time, things like HRT. I think it's been like 50 years of using HRT. Mm-hmm. But there's been a lot of uh, changes in our approaches to these medications. There was a time when everyone went on to HRT routinely and it was just like everyone with the menopause had to be on HRT, which wasn't the right approach. There was also a time when nobody got HRT because there was a scare which were based on not quite correct figures that represented a, about the breast cancer risk, which we know now is much lower than it was it was actually suggested. Mm. And we've kind of, I think, come to a more balanced position now where we need to treat the person in front of us and treat the individual. Um, and so going to see a, see a doctor and talking about exactly which set of symptoms you have, which ones are bothering you the most, helps them to identify what treatments might be most beneficial to you. And it shouldn't be a one size fits all approach, but more about the individual. But there is help out there. Not everyone that goes through the menopause needs to take HRT, for example. But if you do need it, it's a fantastic way of actually making you feel like yourself and get your old life back again. So there is absolutely a place for it. How long would you do the HRT for? It depends. Again, everyone's very different. Some people just need it for a year or a couple of years. Some people can be on it for 10, 20 years. Oh. It, it really is down to the person and how how their experience is. And some people try to come off it, find the symptoms, come back. So they go back onto it again. I know I kind of fast forwarded us there, but um, I've got one that final question. I ask every guest at the end of the episode to set us some homework based on the theme of the conversation. So in this case, Dr. Brooke, what is a simple, actionable step that we can all take when it comes to improving our reproductive health that will help us on our mission to building a happier life? The one thing I wish more people did was keeping a cycle diary. So keeping a close diary of your periods and also what symptoms you experience at different points in your cycle. It's a really useful resource when you then go to see your doctor, for example, if you're struggling with PMS or cramps or all different things to be able to show when those happen in your cycle, how long they affect you for. So Mm -hmm. keeping a diary is a really helpful way of identifying what are causing the issues that you might be facing um, and it, it's something that can start a discussion off for you mm, there's some really good apps out there for that now isn't there yeah 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 there are yeah brilliant thank you so much so for more on you it's the obgynmum.com and on instagram it's the same handle at the obgynmum yes thank you so much Thanks again to Dr. Brooke Vandermolen, aka the OBGYN Mum. And thank you to you, my friend, for listening to this episode of the Happier Life Project with me, Gabby Sanderson. And now for the important housekeeping. If you are suffering with your mental health, 
there is a crisis button on the My Possible Self app, which will signpost you to the correct information for immediate expert advice. Those of you who are listening on one of the podcast platforms, the My Possible Self app is completely free to download, so you don't need to worry about it costing you anything. The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the interviewer, that's me, and of the interviewees. The content of this podcast should not be considered as a substitute for professional or medical advice. The Priory Healthcare are not involved in the production or content of this podcast. If you found this episode helpful and you have the time, please leave us a review and to find and follow us on social media. If you're not already there, we are at My Possible Self and I've been at Radio Gabby. Please do take care and I'll see you on the next one. Bye for now.